Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Ronit Malka, and today I'm joined by Dr. Rodney Chan to talk about facial burns. Thanks so much for being with us, Dr. Chan. Oh, thanks for having me. So to start, could you describe the different ways a burn patient might present and any specific patterns you might be seeing in facial burn patients in particular? You know, I wish I, there's like one specific way that they present, but it really very much depends on the etiology of the injury. Like we see a lot of flame burns or skull burns. Certainly in this area of South Texas, we see a lot of burns just from like flame or industrial incidents. So I would say that the pattern depends very much on what sort of garments that they're wearing, what's if there's any protection, um, or it could be you know, some partial phase or full phase, depending on the mechanism of injury. Uh, there are, you know, there's certainly, uh, when you see a lot of industrial incidents, a lot of times like they're wearing uh, goggles or something that may be protecting their eyes. Uh, and so you can see certain areas that are spared. But as I said, it really depends on the etiology of injury. Are there any common burn patterns you see maybe uh, with different age groups or um, like with electrical injuries, for instance? Yeah, those are, I would say that uh, the different age groups are more prone to uh, to, to different things. Um, and so uh, when someone's much younger, they may be uh, prone to like scald. Uh, and then in the really young age groups, uh, you're right, electrical injury can be common if they like bite on electrical cords. I would say that that's not like a thing as much anymore, I think because of improvements in uh, fire codes and maybe like shielding of the electrical cords. We don't really see uh, like electrical injury of the oral commissures as much as we used to. But certainly when that happens, that's a that's a significant issue. Got it. And we've already reviewed the normal pathophysiology in regards to layers of the skin and phases of wound healing in prior episodes. So building off that, how is normal physiology altered in the setting of burn injuries? And how does normal wound healing affect your treatment goals for burn patients? Wow, that's a that's a uh, that's a complicated question. Uh, I would say that, uh, you know, I think there is when you when you think about burn, you think about the local inflammatory environment, and then you also think about the systemic inflammatory environment. And so, uh, specifically uh, for facial burn, sometimes you can uh, have a lot of other burns in the association. So when someone has an isolated facial burn versus a like 90% total body surface area burn that happens to have a facial involvement, you have a very different systemic inflammatory response. Uh, and so that systemic inflammatory response can, you know, significantly affect your outcomes, uh, not just in the early phase, because in the early phase, you, you could have a lot of dynamic changes in your blood pressure, uh, and a lot of inflammatory cytokines, uh, but it also, you know, the, the prolonged inflammation uh, happens and persists for much longer when you have a, any associated burn. But let's say if you were to take the systemic inflammatory response out, out of the way, even does any local insult to skin uh, result in a lot of, you know, release of inflammatory cytokines and 
the these cytokines are more persistent when there is like dead tissue around. So I think as much as possible, we try to get rid of the dead tissue as quickly as possible to make it a clean surgical field. Uh, and so uh, you will get all these like infiltration of inflammatory cells uh, and having some inflammation is good for wound healing, uh, but we don't want it to be overwhelming. And so I think that one of the main goals and early goals of facial burn management, especially the deep ones, has to be the removal of uh, the nidus infection. Got it. And um, in terms of like later healing, are there any things that you're taking into account in terms of hoping for particular cell types or, or aiming for tissue remodeling to occur by a certain time period? Uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I wish to be able to tell you that, oh, you know, we know exactly the type of phenotype of cells that we want in, in the inflammatory milieu in order to result in really good healing. Uh, I know that, you know, people think about, uh, the phases of wound healing as having, you know, the M1 and M2, uh, macrophage phenotypes having like different types of TGF beta as being better than others. Um, but in the practical management of facial burns, I wouldn't say that uh, we are like very keen to looking at these particular uh, inflammatory cells and their and and their phenotypes. Is really what I mentioned earlier, where you try to get rid of the dead tissue as quickly as possible, uh, and then try to manage your inflammation, and then also do uh, scar management and decrease, you know, sun exposure, you know, compression in order to make the scar heal as good as possible. Got it. That makes sense. Kind of moving on to workup, when you're seeing these patients for the first time, is there anything in particular on history that you are noting or trying to be aware of? You know, I... You know, when, when someone comes in with, you know, facial burn or really uh, any type of burn, uh, there's, you know, a lot of chaos that's, uh, that's, that's ongoing at the, at the moment. Uh, at the t- usually, these patients are generally pretty healthy, but of course, you want to be aware of all their, uh, you know, medical issues and any medical comorbidities. Uh, I would say that you, uh, one of the main things I, I look at is what other areas of are involved. We sort of mentioned earlier um, how contribution of systemic inflammatory response is significant. Uh, so, you know, any associated trauma elsewhere in the body, uh, any associated significant body surface area burn elsewhere, and then any particular significant trauma to the face where if there are any other imaging modalities that needs to be obtained uh, prior to uh, burn management. And um, kind of related to, especially for ENTs, um, inhalational injuries are often concomitant with facial burn. Do you feel like that significantly influences your management of a facial burn patient? Absolutely. Uh, oftentimes, the you know the presence of you know singed nasal hair or uh, carbonaceous sputum, and just a history of being the burn. Uh, occurring in a closed space would clue you into inhalational injury, uh, early bronchoscopy to determine uh, your definitive diagnosis, uh, and then also obtaining you know an ABG and then uh, carboxyhemoglobin uh, are all important. But I would say that uh, whenever there's facial burn, there's always uh, a question of whether you can opt, you know you can manage the airway definitively, and so. 
it's important to keep that in mind and know that as uh, resuscitation happens, uh, swelling will incur and that uh, it's important to be able to secure your airway early on if you have that suspicion. And when a patient presents with burn injuries, how are you determining the extent or the severity of their other injuries? So, I, you know, I think that there's uh, these diagrams that people use, uh, and I think that depending on the age group, they've got a different diagram, but they've got like a Lund-Browder chart um, that talks about the extent of injury, where there are different uh, percentages that you assign to different body parts. Uh, and based on looking at the chart, you can give some sort of rough estimate as to what degree of uh, or sorry, what percentage of burn is involved. Um, those are tricky sometimes because uh, you don't want to count like the first degree burn, but then you want to count the second and the third degree burn. And uh, it sounds like a really straightforward thing to do to determine the percentage body involvement. But uh, it really uh, does take someone who uh, has been doing this for a little while to accurately depict that. So oftentimes when someone is, um, you know, if they're admitted to like an ABA verify burn center, they usually have someone who uh, specifically gets that percentage. You also notice that that percentage changes over time. So when like the EMT calls you and tell you that, oh, you've got approximately someone who has an approximate 60% burn, they go to the ER and it becomes like 50. And then by the time they get to the burn center, it's actually only 10%. Like um, it goes to show you that the... Uh, the system is not like the most uh, robust. However, if you were just to like have an estimate, I would uh, I would go with the rule of nines. Those are that's pretty good. And then if there's spotty areas, and I would go with uh, just using your palm as one percent, and then you can kind of like palm around the body and figure out exactly how many percentages there are plus the rules of nine. Got it. And um, you were touching on it a little bit, but uh, in terms of burn grading, I think we sometimes hear about, you know, degree burn for second, third, or then, you know, thickness uh, grading as well. What's typically used and, and how are those uh, defined? So, you know, those are defined based on the layer of histologic layer of burn involvement. So anything that is just in the very superficial dermis, uh, or just the epidermis itself. Basically, anything that will heal by itself is usually termed first degree. And then second degree, uh, practically, I separate that into like superficial and deep second degree burns. And uh, that's usually involving the dermis. And then by the time uh, you talk about a third degree burn, then that involves the uh, the fat layer. Now, nobody's going to take a biopsy and tell you like that degree of burn is, is first, second, or third, not to mention there's so much geographic heterogeneity uh, that that wouldn't make a difference anyway. Uh, so practically, what most people determine is probably three different distinctions. One is, is this a pretty trivial burn that is just going to be like a sunburn. So that's like a first degree burn. Um, and then if once you take away the first degree burns, then the question is, is this burn going to heal on its own? Or is this burn not going to heal on its own? Uh, and because the burn that's not going to heal on its own, oh, sorry, the, the ones that's going to heal on its own, that's the superficial partial thickness ones. Well, that one you're just going to treat conservatively and it's going to, you don't have to operate. Whereas the ones that are the deep second degree and the third degree burn, well, you know, you're going to need to take that one to the operating room. So I think that's really the main distinction is that when someone comes in, once you figure out the percentages of burn, then the next distinction is, 
does that bird need to go to the operating room for an operative debridement and, and skin replacement? And that's not always like an easy determination because um, there are a lot of things that we can use clinically to uh, to gauge whether something is you know superficial or not superficial. And some of these things are like, well, uh, what's the color? Is there any blanching? Um, does that you know does it involve the hair follicle? Are the, are the hair follicles still intact? Uh, and then um, like are they sensate? So certainly things are like if you look does it if it looks super leathery and it's insensate uh, and uh, and and it just feels like a hard eschar, you can categorize that and say that well that's a third degree burn and that needs to be excised and it needs to be grafted, uh, but it's not always that straightforward. I think uh, the one thing that you have in your armamentarium is time, which means that superficial burns tend to get better. Um, whereas deep burns tend not to. So if you have like a day or two, which sometimes, oftentimes you do, um, you see the the delineation, and that, and oftentimes we do let burns kind of wait a couple of days um, to see kind of how they progress, especially in facial burns, because what happens is when someone comes in with uh, you know like, let's say like a you know 50 60 percent burn they have a lot of different burn percent burn everywhere and so the main goal is to try to get rid of the necrotic burden as much as possible in some of the like larger areas of the body like the trunk or the extremities so you do usually have a few days to assess the face to see whether uh how deep the burn is got it i think that's something we probably don't think about as much because we focus on the face so much so that's a really good really good point for us yeah, having that time is uh, it's it's important because that way you can sort of you know look at look at the face over the next couple of days, um, and then you can sort of see how things progress. Sometimes people talk about like um, like a term called like burn conversion, which is basically like when a burn comes in, uh, it may be like indeterminate, and then depending on the patient's like blood pressure, uh, sometimes it can. Uh, turn deeper. And so that has to be taken into account as well. I know that like, this is like, um, like <laughs> the other thing is like, you would expect that there should be like some imaging modality for you to be able to just say, oh yeah, you know, this is like, you know, let, let me use this modality to figure out what depth burn this is. Uh, and indeed there are, there's some things like, like laser Doppler, laser speckled um, that sometimes are used to determine burn depths. Uh, but I would say practically, uh, aside from a research like study, they're not used that often. So that determination of you know a deep burn or a superficial burn that is really left up to the clinician. Um, and you started to mention it a little earlier uh, when discussing other uh, traumatic injuries, but are there any other workups uh, you'd like to get on these patients in terms of labs or imaging? Yeah, sorry. I, you know, I, I kind of skipped a little bit of that, but I think that when someone comes in with a uh, significant burn, then I would think that all of that workup where it's similar to a, like a, a trauma patient, um, I think it's, it's absolutely necessary where, uh, you know, you, you should get a full set of labs um, and uh, having, you know, ABG carboxyhemoglobin, if you believe that a, uh, you know, inhalational component is, is there. Uh, and uh, any all the standard workups, I would think, is uh, is appropriate. So now we've uh, reviewed both presentation, workup, and um, 
kind of early diagnosis. In terms of treatment, starting off broadly, what are your overarching goals for treatment in a burn patient? So I would say that the the main, I think your main goal is to make sure the patient survives. <laughs> uh, it sounds like kind of trivial, but it's it's a lot of times these patients present with uh, some a lot of significant injuries, and as a you know burn plastic surgeon focusing um, on the treatment of facial burns, it's important to uh, to see look at the big picture and see. Uh, how the rest of the burns are being treated. So I would say that it's really important to uh, be in pretty close contact with your intensivist, with uh, your hospitalist, or with your uh, with your burn acute burn surgeons to determine like what is the overall uh, plan for that patient um, who has available skin, where the skin should be used and distributed, what is the timing of operation. Uh, you know, talking to your anesthesiologist to see like how best to you know manage the airway because ultimately your number one goal is survival. Um, but beyond that, then of course we want to make sure that the facial burn is treated like as appropriately as possible to maximize uh, function. And in terms of kind of initial management when a burn patient comes in, um, what are you using or um, kind of what are your secondary resuscitation measures to improve their survival rates and the rate of tissue uh, salvage? Yeah. So, you know, I I would say that um, in this particular realm, I really do rely a lot on my, you know, burn intensivists and burn surgeons to kind of manage that patient. But in general terms, I would say that I want appropriate perfusion to the uh, end organs. So you want to make sure that your hemodynamics are optimized to perfuse your end organs. I know that uh, different centers use different uh, metrics in order to assess that perfusion. Uh, in you know you may have heard of you know the Parkland formula or the Brook formula or now more recently uh, you can you hear about people talking about the burn navigator. All these are different ways that uh, people determine like what is the uh, rate of resuscitation and in order to ma- maximize perfusion in organs, but without like flooding the patient so much that now you run into problems with like pulmonary edema and compartment syndrome. But beyond the initial resuscitation, I would say that uh, you, uh, while you're either watching the burn and seeing what mixing, making some determination, whether the burn needs to be uh, debrided or whether you're just waiting for your burn surgeons uh, to deal with other areas or making sure the patient stabilized, I would make sure that the burn uh, scar itself is examined daily. You would want to make sure there's some sort of prophylactic antimicrobial uh, that's being applied onto the burn skin in order to prevent a secondary infection. A lot of people use like silver-based products. Uh, and so traditionally, people used to use a product called Silvadine. Uh, I would say that Silvadine is good. Uh, it's a little bit messy because it's like kind of a cream-based. Um, and then now they're you know, they're more solid face dressings that contain silver and has silver release once it's wet uh, in order to uh, decrease the incidence of infection in the burn scar. Got it. And are these patients often getting IV antibiotics too, or are those not really reaching the the scar tissue? Yeah, it's actually, uh, 
it's not indicated uh, unless there's there's a clear evidence of infection. So it's we know that the scar itself, uh, because it's dead or contains dead tissue, it will uh, you know it will get in, get infected with time. Uh, but at the beginning, it's really sterile. So uh, the goal is to use topicals to manage the scar itself while surgically plan to excise them as quickly as feasible. Uh, and uh, IV antibiotics or systemic antibiotics is only reserved uh, for uh, basically a, a more invasive infection. Right. So I guess we, we've we decided for the you know superficial partial thickness burns that, that they're kind of local wound care largely. But for those deeper partial thickness um, or full thickness burns, um, what kind of management do you typically do both early and then you know, as progressing as their care uh, continues. Sure. Uh, so this goes into uh, the management of sort of deep partial thickness burns or full thickness burns that we believe, uh, if not excised, will significant will, will result in significant scarring or not healing. So I ca- kind of want to clarify that point because what happens is, uh, like the face is an area that's very well like vascularized. And so what that means is that a lot of times, like if you give it enough time, the burn's gonna the burn scar will fall off and your body will begin to heal it. Uh, and so the whole management of facial burns has to do with maximizing your outcomes and making sure things heal as good as possible. Uh, and so what in in the area of the face, maximizing outcomes and optimal healing has like has to do with preserving like structures where they need to be like, you know, the, you want the lower eyelid to be where the lower eyelid is supposed to be, which is like in the position of the lower limbus. Uh, you want the mouth opening to be appropriate. You want like smooth texture in terms of like the cheeks. You want like proper mouth opening. You want like a like flexible neck that can, uh, you know, that can extend and, and, and turn and has a appropriate um, cervical mental angle. And so all of this requires restoration of uh, normal skin uh, architecture and normal skin appearance. And so, so when it comes to surgical management of, uh, of facial burns, I think those are kind of like the main uh, overarching uh, goals. So we're talking about now a burn, a facial burn that is deep, and you've determined that the burn should be uh, excised. And so the timing of that excision, uh, I usually coordinate that with the other surgeons to see, you know, whether the, uh, you know, the the truncal burns are excised, the hand burns are excised, um, and but ideally the facial burn should really be excised uh, no later than seven to ten days. And in that particular excision operation, uh, your goal is to try to get rid of uh, the burn scar as much as possible. Uh, I usually use like a Goulian dermatome that's set to like 0.08 uh, thousandths of an inch. Uh, and you usually try to get it to uh, areas where there's punctate bleeding and that you can uh, envision you know, putting a skin graft on. I typically don't put a skin graft on on that same day, though, because what you're looking for is 100% graft take. 
because anything less than that will result in a scar. And so the way that I get around that is I usually don't put skin on that same day. I usually put aloe graft on after I excise and do hemostasis and do irrigation. Uh, and I sew the aloe graft on kind of like I sew skin graft on. Uh, and so what the aloe graft will do is it allows me to see if a skin graft is really going to take. And because even though you, when you're excising, you think that you got to like an adequate layer and that skin will take, you don't sometimes always know. Sometimes you actually have under excise and the aloe graft allows like a, almost like a test bed. And so a few days later, when you take the patient back and you remove the aloe graft, how stuck the aloe graft is determines how good of a job you did during the initial excision. And obviously you get a second chance or third chance or fourth chance, hopefully not that many more, uh, where you take the aloe graft off and then you can actually re-excise more so that you can get to a proper layer. Uh, this is a good opportunity to also talk a little bit about like uh, the, sub, the, the facial subunits. Sometimes people ask like, well, you know, if like if, if the burn involves like, you know, more than 50% of the subunit, am I supposed to like excise the other 50%? Uh, I would say generally speaking, no, uh, because you are dealing with a situation where you don't already have enough skin. And, uh, and the subunit principle, I usually preserve uh, for later reconstructions. Now, if you tell me that, well, you know, 90 something percent of the subunit is involved, then it's probably not unreasonable to excise the other, you know, five, 10 percent. But I wouldn't excise like 50 percent of a subunit just so that you follow that subunit principle. But now you have taken a burn to the OR, you've excised it, you've put aloe graft on, and the aloe graft have now been taken off after a few days, and now you feel like you have complete adequate excision. Now, in this optimal setting is when I put skin on. Uh, it's important for the face that the skin be color match. So I think that the best color match option for facial skin is scalp. Uh, and uh, taking scalp skin is uh, it's similar to taking uh, skin elsewhere in the body. Uh, but it's uh, just keep in mind that you usually have to uh, put some sort of uh, solution to control hemostasis before you take the scalp skin. Uh, most people take their skin grafts at like 10 one thousandths of an inch or 12 one thousandths of an inch and they mesh it like one and a half to one. That is not the case with facial burns. So in facial burns, uh, especially when you're trying to preserve facial architecture and not distort structures, you want to take your skin graft, uh, I would say, 16 to 22 one thousands of an inch so this is a, actually a pretty thick graft uh, and i don't mesh it uh, and i pie crust it so the reason for people mesh it is so that they can expand it but obviously you want to be as uh, cognizant of any potential scarring later on and the mesh would result in some sort of mesh pattern scarring that you wouldn't necessarily want on someone's face and so uh yeah, so you, I, I usually sew the uh, scalp skin graft on the, on the face with, uh, you know, with sutures and uh, just with a pie crust uh, so that any, any fluid can, can escape. And is there any role, I guess, for either physical therapy or um, kind of laser, steroids, tissue expanders, things like that for more mechanical property management later on? 
Ah, uh, yeah, there, there, there are. I would say that that all, all those things are a little bit later. I would say that the fir- the, the most important thing, kind of early on after facial burn, is to examine um the the skin graft that you just place. I usually probably keep some sort of compression dressing on this on on the facial skin grafts that you just place, uh, in order so that it can adhere. But sometimes what you see is you can still see some like bubbles uh, of fluid underneath your graft. So usually on post-shop day between one and two, I would take off your initial dressing and I would take like an 11 blade or 15 blade to pop any bubbles and then like almost squeeze out the fluid with with like a Q-tip. And then after all the, uh, after your graft is taken, uh, then I would, uh, probably keep some compression on there until it's healed. All those other modalities that you mentioned, you know the uh, you know the laser and the tissue expansion and like all those things are come kind of later. I usually don't commence those until uh, until the patients have left the hospital. Usually, you know, six weeks after after the hospitalization after the initial. Got it. And I think particularly relevant to us as otolaryngologists are the kind of specific um, areas of the face that are functional and hard to reconstruct. So like the ears, eyes, and mouth. Are there any um, kind of specific goals or uh, techniques that you've come across to help reconstruct those kind of tricky areas? <laughs> that could like be a different podcast. <laughs> um, no, I mean, in general, I can sort of mention to you like what what I do kind of early on and what I do late. Um, so I think ears are difficult. Uh, I think it's, you know, obviously a, a protuberant area of the face and it's a frequently burned area of the face. I would say that early on, uh, I apply uh, uh, sulfamylon as a cream on top of the eschar in order to prevent any infection. It's not, I would say ear burns are not usually something that's treated early. It's something that kind of follows after the management of facial burn and the, and the truncal burns. Uh, and so after the prolonged period of time that you're observing, the sulfamylon would have done its job and basically any necrotic tissue would kind of have fallen off um, and you'll see what is like left alive. Uh, and that's kind of where you, essentially that's where you kind of start. Uh, a lot of times uh, what you'll find is in situations where uh, the, in, the insult is not that severe, you'll see uh, the skin re-epithelialized, um, but in severe cases of ear burns, uh, essentially the whole helix and anti-helix would be absent. And the only thing that's left is kind of the control area. Uh, and so you're seeing the patient back several months later and they want to discuss with you options for ear reconstruction. And so at that time, you would have to kind of navigate through uh, whether you want to do an autologous reconstruction or you want to do a uh, non-autologous, uh, you know, prosthetic type reconstruction. Uh, I don't usually do the bioprosthetic type reconstruction. That usually goes to uh, another specialty. But the autologous reconstruction really hinges on kind of what's left uh, and ensuring that they understand the expectations of what an autologous reconstruction would look like. Sometimes you need rib cartilage. Sometimes you use temporal parietal fascia flap. Sometimes you use a contour transposition. really depends on what surrounding structures are really left in place. And that's really a little bit up to the artistry and, 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 and the particular situation. 
I think sometimes uh, we hear about, um, in theory, taking any remaining cartilage and placing it in an abdominal pocket to kind of save for later. Do you find that that's something you frequently are able to do, or is it usually kind of damaged beyond repair? <laughs> never, never done, never done it. <laughs> never done it. Cool. No, yeah. Um, I, you know, I think that if cartilage has been damaged so extensively, that that to me means that uh, it's probably like infected or necrotic, and so it's unlikely that you're going to be able to uh, to to salvage it. I would say that. Uh, the, the only situation that I have seen where you may be able to bury something is if the, the, the ear burn uh, results in cartilage exposure, um, but the surrounding skin is okay, which means that you can sort of bury the ear in a post-auricular pocket and then re-exteriorize that later on. I think that that's fine. The more common scenario, honestly, is uh, where you know, the helix is gone, maybe the anti-helix is still present, uh, and most of the architecture of the year is gone, and the patient comes back and really wants uh, some reconstruction of the framework and uh, to be able to, let's say, like wear glasses or something like that. And I've had some success in using uh, the like the, ca- the cartilage of the control bowl as a rotational flap uh, in a two-stage operation to, to reconstruct the ear. But as I said earlier, there are many different ways to reconstruct the ear. Uh, and in the difficult thing about reconstructing a burn ear is that you're dealing with a lot of scar tissue around the ear. So you have standard options like a temporal parietal fascia flap or like, you know, a rip type reconstruction. You know, it's not possible it's not like a microtia case where like all the surrounding tissue is 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 intact with oral commissure burns do you typically find splinting or stenting helps prevent microstomia or do you have any change in your debridement window uh so not i don't i don't change the debridement uh, uh routine differently for uh, oral commissure burns uh you know obviously anything that's dead needs to go and then, you know, and, and then obviously, uh, you know, skin replacement, as I have said earlier, uh, I do do, you know, splinting and I have work with rehabilitation in order to, uh, you know, in order to maximize uh, mouth opening. Oftentimes there are, there is a need for oral commissure plasty if the uh, mouth opening is inadequate. I try not to do that very early on unless absolutely they need it for oral hygiene or they can't even like, you know, eat anything. Because what I find is uh, if you if there's a way to delay these operations until some of the inflammation is decreased, you end up for sure having a better outcome. So what I see sometimes early is that people are kind of pushed to do an operation when this tissue is still very friable uh, and they end up having an outcome that's not ideal. And then it makes the second or the third operation more and more difficult. So as much as you can, I would say, you know, temporize your your final reconstruction until later on. Sometimes you can't do it, but as much as you can. Sometimes oral commissure burns, like, you know, there are many ways that we release an oral commissure, largely using local flaps. But earlier we had talked about like an electrical injury to the oral commissure. Those are particularly difficult. Uh, And they, uh, and sometimes you have to bring in sort of adjacent tissue, either from the cheek or from the tongue or something like that. And for eyelid or um, periorbital burns, I know this is something that we would always get our ophthalmology colleagues on board for, but are there any um, other specific flaps or, or uh, kind of considerations you take into account for these? 
I think eyelid is one of the situations where uh, I would operate early. Uh, a lot of times, you know, as I said, from some of the other reconstructive modalities, like we try to wait. Obviously, if you know you sense that there's a you know a corneal uh, impending dry dryness, or, or your ophthalmology colleagues is telling you that something really needs to be done, then I would take that pretty seriously. Uh, I would say that the majority of uh, eyelid releases that I do for uh, facial burn is the use is to use uh, full thickness skin grafts. Uh, sometimes in the past, people have talked about using like split thickness skin graft for the upper lid and maybe full thickness skin graft for the lower lid. I think that as much as possible, using full thickness skin grafts uh, gives you the best results. Sometimes you're forced to only use split just because you don't have full thickness options. Uh, but I would say as I would say full thickness gives you gives you the best result. Um, in terms of the best way to kind of maximize your release, I would say that think about your eyelid releases like uh, going from one axis of the eyelid rotation to another. So basically, uh, most successful eyelid releases I've done really involves the incision that goes from medial to the medial canthus to lateral to the lateral canthus. So basically an incision that goes across the entire eyelid uh, and several millimeters uh, from the lid margin. And uh, typically speaking, after releasing the skin, uh, you should be able to maximize your release already. But in some specific situations, you may have to go through uh, the orbicularis. Uh, the amount of release that you want to do uh, is more than you think. So that means that when you're releasing the upper eyelid, the lid margin, you want to be almost to the, um, not necessarily just to the lower lid margin, but to the uh, inferior orbital rim. So you can sort of uh, maximize your release because for sure there's going to be, be some contraction that you need to uh, correct for. Yeah, wow, that's, that's a lot of release, so. Yeah, and you'll find that, uh, you know, you, you, the, the graft is always a little larger than you think. Uh, and, uh, but that's too, but over the years that I find that that has given me sort of the best, uh, best outcome. So we've touched on it a little bit already, but um, when considering skin grafts, there are a wide variety of both the biologic and synthetic options out there. Could you just briefly re review those for us and um, when you prefer one over the other? Yeah, I think that when you have someone who has skin loss and you need definitive skin coverage, there right now is not a biologic equivalent uh, of an autologous, sorry, meaning an allograft equivalent of an autologous skin graft. That means that it's uh, if you need skin, there, that skin has to come from that particular patient. Uh, the use of some of these newer... Uh, skin substitutes or uh, newer products are really reserved for when, you know, either temporizing uh, like an open wound, like an allograft situation where you're just seeing if the debridement is adequate before you put skin on or that you just don't have enough skin. So you're waiting for more allograft to be available. Sometimes in facial burns, we do use Integra, which is a collagen uh, glycosaminoglycan matrix that have we have some success in decreasing the use of autologous skin graft but it certainly doesn't spare uh the 
use at all of autologous graft. You still need autologous graft. It just means that when you use Integra, it's a dermal substitute. So instead of taking your autologous skin at, let's say, 21 thousandths of an inch, maybe you can take it at 10 one thousandths of an inch when you put it on something like Integra. I This particular field really has uh, you know changed a lot and I think will continue to change as we see new products come out that may one day uh, either decrease or completely obviate the need of autologous graphs. But as said earlier, we're not there. And uh, anytime there is a significant skin loss uh, that needs skin replacement, you're looking at an autograft. What are the common complications you see in the burn population that we should be looking out for? So, you know, I think in general, that question can be answered many different ways. But I think in facial burns, I would say, uh, I think we should all be aware of the common uh, late effects of facial burn. So after uh, the patient leaves the hospital and comes back to you a couple of weeks or a month later, uh, I think the common things that you see are basically displacement of normal anatomic structures. And that is secondary to either scarring or secondary to uh, like skin graft contraction or something like that. So the common places that normal anatomic structures can be displaced are the upper eyelid, the lower eyelid, and then the, you know, the nares, and then the upper lip and the lower lip. Uh, And the solution off, uh, depends on the severity of that sort of displacement and oftentimes will require additional skin replacement. The, uh, you know, another significant issue with facial burn is just the development of like hypertrophic scar that is, let's say like on the cheek and the texture is off and it's, uh, it's got a lot of irregularity. And so uh, in those particular situations, either additional skin replacement is necessary or, or scar rehabilitation using laser. I would lump the use, I, I would lump like um, neck contractures into, into what we as uh, surgeons need to look out for after a facial burn uh, because that obviously is contiguous with the face uh, and limits the patient's function. Um, and also tends to distort uh, facial structures. So uh, a bad neck contracture can also, you know, pull on the eyelid and pull on the lower lip and chin. There are really quite a number of things to, that that one needs to look out for. And then the other thing is, uh, in males, especially in the beard forming area, is very common uh, to develop like folliculitis, and so that usually has to be addressed as well. As I said, sometimes these uh, there, there's so many so much to talk about uh, in terms of the management of these uh, secondary complications. For how long do you usually follow up with your burn patients after injury? You know, that's a great question. Uh, longer than you think. <laughs> uh, so, you know, they, they leave the hospital. They, at the beginning, like may even have some reluctance to come back because they have such a traumatic event, like during their initial hospitalization. Uh, but I would say it just depends on the severity of the of the burn injury. Uh, you know, it's not atypical for us to follow patients for about a year. Uh, but I would say that it's depending when someone has a pretty severe injury, we continue to see them like five to ten years out because uh, because you know the scarring is pretty severe, and there's always more and more that you can do to uh, you know to help rehabilitate the scar or improve the improve the scarring. 
So those are all the questions I had. Um, Before we move on to a summary, was there anything else you wanted to review or emphasize? No, you know, I I think that you have brought out like a lot of really great points for uh, the initial management and then the late management of facial burns. Uh, You know, we sort of talked a little bit about, you know, what the function of the face is and, um, and part of it is, you know, appearance. And because appearance is the function of the face, and so I can't emphasize enough the you know the importance of maintaining normal anatomic proportions, maintaining like normal anatomic locations. Uh, the, the importance of color match when you pick the area of skin that you're taking for your skin graft. Obviously, when someone has bilateral facial burns, that becomes less important. Um, but let's say if someone has like a unilateral facial burn, like picking color match skin for uh, the other side of the face is really important. The techniques that we're using to treat facial burn isn't really that different than how we treat burns in other areas of the body, like the chest or the abdomen. Uh, but what's different about the face is that the, the maintenance of normal anatomic locations and normal anatomic structures is so paramount to the face function that uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, all, it's like everything they have to do, it's, it has to heal perfectly. And so that's, the, that's why uh, the emphasis on you know, meticulous hemostasis, uh, taking away 100% of the, the breeded tissue or necrotic tissue, and then giving yourself a second chance to go back and look for hemostasis and look for, uh, look for adequate debridement. I think that would be uh, you know, the main thing when, when I think about optimizing outcome. Well, thank you so much for a really comprehensive and educational review, Dr. Chan. We really appreciate it. Oh, you're so welcome. To summarize, facial burns are challenging to manage because of their variety in presentation and frequency of other bodily injuries. Whenever evaluating a facial burn, you should be thinking about inhalational burns as well, particularly if the patient has singed nasal hairs, carbonaceous sputum, or was in an enclosed space at the time of injury. Total body surface area of burns is often estimated very precisely at burn centers using a provider well-versed in accurate burn estimation. That being said, we're often taught to roughly estimate total body surface area of anything more than a superficial burn using the rule of nines namely 9% assigned to each arm and the head, and 18% assigned to each leg, the anterior trunk, and the posterior trunk. In areas of patchy involvement, a palm-sized area can be roughly approximated as 1% total body surface area. Debridement is usually conducted within 7 to 10 days, with the goal of removing necrotic tissue that spurs local inflammation, and the wound bed is often prepared with a cadaveric allograft or with synthetic graft to ensure adequate vascular supply before skin grafting. Unlike with other areas of the body, scarring needs to be minimized in the face, and skin grafts should not be meshed, just pie-crusted, enough to prevent seroma formation under the graft. They're also typically taken from like-appearing tissue, often from the scalp. Scar contracture leading to decreased neck range of motion, ectropion, or microstomia are common complications that are often treated with laser therapy or local tissue release after acute injury has resolved. As always, we'll end with a few review questions. I'll ask the question, wait for a moment to let you think of the answer or pause the podcast, and then give the answer. To start off, how does the biochemical pathway of burn healing affect management?
We are often asked about the biochemical pathways that lead to burn progression. So just to quickly review, that starts with the inflammatory stage with neutrophil and then macrophage and fibroblast influx during the first week, progresses to a proliferative stage with re-epithelialization, neovascularization, type 3 collagen deposition, and wound contraction, usually up until about three weeks after injury, and then progresses to remodeling from three weeks to about 12 months after injury largely with replacement of type 3 with type 1 collagen. That being said, the lack of therapeutic targets within these pathways and variability of response in patients with concomitant injuries, particularly in terms of systemic inflammation, limits its practical utility in treating burns. The main takeaway is that remodeling takes a long time, up to a year or more, during which time burns will continue to evolve, so patients should be followed for evidence of scar, hypertrophy, contracture, or hyperpigmentation during that time. Next up, describe how we define the severity of a burn. For a bonus, how do we treat them differently in broad strokes? Burns are often described as first, second, and third degree, or alternatively as superficial, partial thickness, and full thickness burns. First degree, or superficial burns, involve the epidermis only, whereas second degree, or partial thickness burns, extend into the dermis, and third degree, or full thickness burns, extend through the dermis into the subcutaneous fat. Fourth degree burn is a term that is not frequently used anymore, but historically refers to extension down into muscle or bone. For the bonus, uh, maybe a bit of a guess what I'm thinking question, but remember that partial thickness or second degree burns can be superficial, i.e. involving the papillary dermis, or deep involving both the papillary and reticular dermis. Superficial partial thickness burns, in addition to first degree burns, can heal with conservative management only, whereas deep partial thickness or more severe burns require debridement and grafting. And finally, what is the role of antibiotics in the management of burns? Topical antibiotics are a must for all burn management, as compromised vascular supply and necrotic tissue creates an ideal medium for infection. Systemic antibiotics, on the other hand, are not indicated unless there are signs of additional systemic infection. In terms of which topicals to use, typically these have both antibiotic and emollient properties to improve moisturization of the dry burn bed. Silver sulfadiazine, or silvidine, is commonly used, but may cause neutropenia, and many institutions have started moving towards silver-containing solid face dressings for ease of use. Other topicals to consider include maffinide acetate or sulfamylon, another broad spectrum that penetrates ASCAR as well, uh, but patients need to be monitored for hypochloremic acidosis. Our old faithful bacitracin ointment is typically reserved for more superficial injuries, and silver nitrate is infrequently used because of poor eschar penetration and the ability to cause broad electrolyte derangements. That wraps up our discussion on facial burns. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.